0: Rockin' Fiction commencing in 3, 2, 1. What is up, everybody? We are back with Rockin' and Fiction, and I am on the phone here with Andrew Nikloski, uh, my friend, former co worker, and uh, actually, member... Hey, don't say
1: call it former, man. It's all gonna come back one day.
0: Yeah, one day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, On a more serious matter, I'm here to discuss my recent blog where I talked about a book that I've been reading called uh, Where Do We Go From Here? It's the last book ever written by Martin Luther King Jr., doctor and reverend, uh, about multiple years after the civil rights movement and how society is reverting back to the status quo. And as I was writing this blog, and as I was reading the book at that, I noticed a lot of parallels between what's happening now in 2020 with recent events and what happened in 1967 in the northern geographical areas of the United States of America uh, that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was writing about. And, um, so, yeah... Um, The reason that I chose Andrew to talk about uh, an interview is because uh, I know from um, not only my Facebook feed, Facebook feed, but from knowing him as a person that uh, he's actually there before you hear about it on the news. He actually knows what what he's seeing in front of him as opposed to what uh, you hear about and are told on the news. And he's actually part of these events. He's actually part of the protests. He's in the loop. And oftentimes, uh, he beats major radio, as I've talked about previously. So with that being said, I thought he'd be absolutely perfect and added to the fact that he's a radical libertarian just like me. Um so uh so it I thought it worked really well. So with that being can, with that being said if saying, I could go
1: up on that part, um well on what Zach was saying about that is one thing that I do uh, one thing that I do when stuff like this happens and stuff like the protests and the riots pop off, is I like to be there down on the ground live streaming exactly what's happening because I know that the media is going to spin it. Fox is gonna spin it one way, CNN is gonna spin it the other way. I would rather people have the object, or at least the ability, if they so choose, to seek it out—the objective truth of what's actually happening on the ground at events like those.
0: Uh, yeah and I think that's really powerful And I think that means a lot more And I think it's really powerful that Especially in the year 2020 which Much consider the year of disconnection Due to the internet that there's still Young people out there protesting and At that old people protesting too I think that's really really powerful And I support it every time I see it
1: Absolutely
0: Uh, So, with that being said, what is the most uh, marked difference between uh, the protests on foot and the protests on television?
1: Uh, The biggest marked difference between the protests on foot and the protests on television is the television likes sound bites. They like quick little clips that they can play for five seconds to get you scared of one person or the other person. Whereas the protests, they're generally... Peaceful. I mean you get some people saying, you know, there are riots and stuff, and yes, there are riots and stuff, but for the most part, it's generally peaceful, and a lot of people, especially on the right, they like to claim that it's the protesters who are starting these riots. It's the protesters who decide to engage in violence, but oftentimes, in my experience there, it's usually the police who tend to instigate the violence through tear gas, through riot shields, through rubber bullets, uh, fired, on, uh, fired unprovokedly, uh, fired at unarmed, um, people just simply exercising their first amendment right to speak freely without, um, retribution from the government. And this yeah, is absolutely. exactly what the first amendment was written for. So the government can't shoot us because they don't like the, what we're saying, i.e. Boston massacre. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And, um, Uh, One of the biggest things that Martin Luther King uh, Jr. talks about is following uh, the the movement of civil rights uh, in Birmingham and then ultimately at Washington, D.C. He talked about how media tried to... Uh, it's tried to express how terrible uh, it was that they were just walking and how inconvenienced they were in traffic and all kinds of things. He lo- he liked to talk about how generally the uh, the uh, the white centralist uh, liked to um, appeal to the danger where it wasn't necessarily in those times. And I'm definitely seeing firsthand how that's just recurring.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, back in the day, you still had, like, cartoonists for newspapers and journalists and publications saying, Oh, you know what? Like, there's this cartoon that I saw from 1964, I think. It was a photo of Martin Luther King with, like, a a cartoon of Martin Luther King with a uh, burning city in the background. And he's like, I plan to hold another peaceful protest tomorrow, which is a very, very, very wild mischaracterization of that. I mean... Compared to, I mean, even if you were to compare it to today's um, riots and protests with the George Floyd incident and the George Floyd murder and stuff like that, Martin Luther King's protests were so peaceful that they would almost call them, you know, just fucking birthday parties nowadays is how yeah, peaceful honestly. they tend to be back then. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Of
1: course, you had some writing and stuff, but not on the scale that we saw today. So if those journalists back then saw what we were saw in, or what we see today... They
0: would probably feel over dead, oh yeah, absolutely, and uh that that's a recurring theme throughout history that danger is relative, right, and now we just live in dangerous yeah. times, and you know the um the institution was made aware of what the people will do uh given injustice, oh
1: absolutely and. If I may go off here on a story, uh, I will be paraphrasing uh, Dave Chappelle, the wonderful comedian here a little bit, but I knew about this before I heard his uh, 846 um, comedy uh, special, uh, Borderline Comedy, I wouldn't really call it comedy, but we all know what I'm talking about, is there was a, a man by the name of Chris Dorner. Chris Garner, when um, he was a, uh, he was in the military, he was honorably discharged after several years, probably seven, you know, the normal term or whatever, or six or something like that. I'm not too voiced in the military, so I don't know exactly how long, but you get the point. He served his time in the military. He was dishonorably discharged, and he came back, and he wanted to help the American people still, so he did what he thought was to help the American people, and he signed up for the LAPD. And he served several years in the Los Angeles Police Department until he was serving a uh, warrant uh, for somebody to be arrested. I don't know exactly what for. But the white lady who was serving, the white cop he was serving uh, the warrant with, he she used what he considered was unreasonable force. I think she kicked a handcuffed man or battered a handcuffed man or something while he was just sitting on the ground peaceful. Um, and so he decided to take every course of action he could. He went through the police department to report her. He went through the union to report her. And he was subsequently fired from the LAPD. And he took every legal avenue he could. He sued them. He went to his union representatives. He did everything he thought he could. And they still upheld his firing simply for reporting uh, unreasonable excessive force. And so what he did was he wrote a manifesto. We all know where this is going. Uh, he wrote a manifesto, and he declared that he was going to wage asymmetrical warfare uh, against the LAPD because this man came back from the battlefield. I believe he was stationed in Iraq; it may have been Afghanistan, and he was serving there, protecting the American people. And he came back, his oath that he swore, and every other service member of all the branches of the military swore. Was to protect the American citizens and the Constitution from all threats, foreign and domestic. And because of that, he perceived the LAPD to be a threat to the Constitution and to the freedoms of the United States citizens. So he killed, I want to, I believe he ambushed two cops in their car and killed a third cop's daughter. So when they found yeah. him hiding out in Big Bear... No more than, or no fewer than, 400 officers from several different um, departments showed up, and they switched cheese this guy. And uh, oh, it's probably worth mentioning that Chris Dorner is black. That's why. That's probably the main reason why he was fired for reporting excessive force. And they switched cheese this guy, 400 of him. And so I don't see why they can't understand why the fuck we are turning out in such large numbers because they did the exact same thing when Chris Dorner killed one of their own
0: right and that's just the that's the juxtaposition of it you know uh, the infrastructure and the institution is angry at the people for opposing them but they oppose uh, all the people constantly uh, and expect us to be okay with their opposition but the moment that we're in opposition they have a problem and they show their problem but the moment that we show our problem uh, they're allowed to excel and elevate their opposition uh, that's the inherent crux
1: exactly it's a different level of it's a different level of accountability and you would think that in a more just society or as the uh... as the uh, framers of the declaration of independence uh, put it a more perfect society not a perfect society, but a more perfect society, that the people in power would be held to a higher standard of accountability, not a lower standard.
0: Right, yeah, you know, uh, qualified immunity, at least to me, doesn't make sense because if you have the power over life and death, then uh, that should go, uh, at least to me, both ways, you know. Uh, If you have the power over life and death, then you hold life and death in your hands and therefore you should be accountable according to life and death in your hands.
1: Now, let's go down that uh, topic a little bit with qualified immunity, because I hear that brought up with police a lot, but it's pretty much brought up exclusively by police when police are nowhere close to the only agents of the government, agents of the state that benefit from qualified immunity. When was the last time you heard about an EPA administrator going to jail for uh, breaking the law, exercising the duties of their job? You haven't. When was the last time you heard, like, we'll bring this back to our Lois Lerner. She was the head of the IRS tax-exempt department under Obama for a few years. I don't know how long exactly. But when the uh, scandal came to light that the IRS was unfairly targeting and denying applications for 501c3 and uh, C4 status, uh, nonprofit status for uh, right-leaning and uh, religious-leaning groups, She was um, held actually held in contempt of Congress, which the Framers originally designed to be a criminal charge. The Framers of the uh, Constitution did. It's one of the only crimes outlined within the Constitution. And if you or I, Zach, you or me, were uh, held in contempt of Congress, we would be hauled off to jail by the Department of Justice the next day to face criminal charges uh, for contempt of Congress. But you want to know what happened to her? She lost you? her job. That's it. She lost her job. That was all that happened.
0: Yeah, and that's she wasn't right. prohibited
1: from working in government. She wasn't arrested. She wasn't fined. She just had to find a new job.
0: Yeah, and that's the that's the craziest thing uh, about qualified immunity is that you know it shields people uh, from. Um, the responsibilities of civilians. And that's because federal employees, uh, at least in that department, are not considered citizens. Uh, They're considered, uh, quite frankly, federal numbers. And with that being said, they gain uh, privileges that aren't rightly earned and therefore aren't rightly given. And then we get situations such as the one you're talking about.
1: Exactly. And this go we can take this all the way back to redlining. I mean, redline uh, or well, I shouldn't say we could go there because that was legal at the time. But we can take this back to redlining since the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act was designed to well ensure civil rights for all races, ethnicities, and nationalities of people in the U.S. The, uh, designed to in uh, designed to uh, enshrine and codify into law that everyone has equal rights under the law but we don't see people in the government getting arrested for violating civil rights laws we don't see we see civil rights lawsuits brought against the government but all that winds up in is pay million dollar payouts tens of million dollar payouts to the person who sued the government It never it never results in the person at that agency that violated somebody's civil rights getting arrested and it was originally designed to, but because of qualified immunity, pretty much everyone in government can treat black people and people of color and indigenous people of all sorts um, unequal to white folks. And the worst, the absolute worst that they're gonna, that's going to happen is their Christmas bonus is maybe $150 less.
0: Right. And that's wrong.
1: Yeah. It is. it is. It's disgusting, if you ask me, the law, because this law was designed specifically to prevent that from happening. But they didn't take qualified immunity into account with that. I don't necessarily even know if that was a thing back then. I think it was decided by the Supreme Court in the seventies or the eighties.
0: It was, and it wasn't uh, part to, of the original Constitution. Uh, the um, The United States was too small to in uh, was too small to enact something as powerful as qualified immunity in 1776. It did not exist. Kind of like social security.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and. It's just, it's just abhorrent. I mean, this could all go away if there was a national law that says that outlaws qualified immunities at all levels of the local, state, and federal governments. Then people would actually, then government employees would actually be accountable for their actions.
0: And that's what we need is accountability, especially uh, given those uh, high risk, high importance uh, jobs where you need really good people, really qualified people, and really stable people at that. Because if you just, it it undermines the meaning of being uh, a law enforcement officer if you don't have to enforce the law.
1: Exactly. Or if you can make laws up by yourself, and the worst that's going to happen is that it goes on your record as the charge was dropped by the prosecutor.
0: Yeah, you know, we could go all day about uh, about why uh, what undermines the true spirit of the law and the letter of the law. And that's actually, that's where it, that's the heart of this argument is uh, the two doctrines uh, of law enforcement, which is the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Generally, the the civilians, the the mass population of the United States, the people who are not law enforcement, believe in the letter of the law, which is what the the official statute says that the law is according to the ordinance, uh, and therefore law enforcement must follow according to the letter. Versus uh, when you go to police academy, you're taught um, you are a definitely taught the letter of the law because you you are bound to it however in large you're taught the spirit of the law which is essentially uh just um uh just self-fulfilled heroism
1: (laughs) yep it's like the wolf a lot of the way that a lot of them teach it especially the uh, killology classes they have is that uh aka warrior training whatever you want to call it is that the police are the uh, the wolves, and the general populace is the um, sheep. And then it's up to the wolves to protect the sheep. But I don't know if you've read any biblical parables or parables from back in the day when sheep farming was, you know, a huge, gigantic thing. But last I checked, sheep dogs protect the sheep. Wolves are the ones trying to kill the sheep.
0: Yeah. Uh, and besides in in any biblical references she, uh, sheep and goats are almost always having their heads cut off and their blood spewed everywhere why do i why do i want that analogy
1: <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly
0: so um beyond that okay so we've established uh uh the source of injustice in terms of institution with law enforcement in the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law uh so i want to ask um do you, being that you have a first-hand account of these events uh, before and after they became national and international news and an international event at that, I've never seen something so astronomical uh, as this George Floyd event. It's really crazy how so many countries, so many millions of people can stand behind the same uh, the same thing and the same problem. Um, but to get back to what I'm saying, I want to know if you believe that Uh, genuine police reformation uh, will solve um, racial injustice
1: I believe it goes a little bit further than genuine or just just reforming the police the police I believe can only be reformed to a certain extent because they're just like any other government agency you can reform a government agency as much as you want but at the end of the day they're still a government agency And they're still going to try and skirt the uh, court orders, you know, the laws, the policies, as much as they can. I mean, I'm sure that we've all worked a job that says, oh, you know, this is how you're supposed to, I don't know, assemble a cabinet. But you're like, this way is quicker and easier and achieves the same amount of quality in less amount of time. So I'm going to do it that way. I mean, I'm sure we all skirt, you know, rules and regulations that are at our own workplaces. And cops and agents of the government are absolutely no different. So what we need to do is crime isn't random, all right? Crime is not random. Crime is caused by desperation. Crime is caused by need. No rich person, well, I shouldn't say no rich person, but most rich people don't just go out and they say, huh, I bet that guy's got a really nice watch. I'm going to try and steal that watch from him. No, they can just go buy that watch if they want to go buy that watch. But a lot of crime is caused by need. A lot of crime is caused by the inability of people to make ends meet within our system. And so what I believe is the true solution is obviously one ending qualified immunity that has to happen before anything else happens. And two is we need to pour less money into, uh, our police departments and pour more money into other sorts of social work. We need to pour more money into healthcare. We need, and it's not necessarily that we have to raise taxes and increase the budget. No, no we all. have to shift the money around so that we can actually spend the money on things that help people and prevent crime rather that rather than things that only address crime once it's already happened,
0: and that's the that's the thing. We need law enforcement to enforce the law, not react to dangerous situations. And um to expand on that, you said that, Um, Police reformation can only go so far because no matter how far it's reformed, uh, shortcuts will always be taken. How can we um, how can first of all, how can we uh, prevent shortcuts from being taken, if at all possible, uh, by something as as important, but at the same time as crucial to society as law enforcement?
1: Well, that is a major problem because, I mean, we're human. No human is impor- uh, important. I mean, every human wants. Would you shut up, kitty? Uh, every human uh, just wants to do things better. And we're imperfect beings. We simply are. There's no true way of eliminating shortcuts that lead to bad or good consequences, for that matter. But abolishing qualified immunity would cause the police and, frankly, everyone else in government to stop and think, is this shortcut worth it? Is this shortcut actually going to benefit me and my friends and my partners and society as a whole in the long run? Am I going to go to jail if this shortcut goes the wrong way? Yeah, right, exactly. And so that might make them stop and think once before, you know, say, oh, we, we could just peacefully apprehend this guy and, you know, interview him and be like, hey, man, what's going on? What happened there? Can you give your side of the story? Instead of just rushing to, oh, we're going to pin this guy or we're going to handcuff this guy, throw him in the back of the cruiser and put him down on the ground and put our knee on him until he yeah. stops breathing.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Now, the abolishing qualified immunity would uh, definitely make officers think twice about their actions and about their shortcuts before they actually take them. And I think that, again, we are an imperfect species. We're an imperf- We are imperfect beings. And I think that is the closest that we are going to get in terms of eliminating um, the imperfectness in law enforcement as much as we humanly can.
0: Okay. Uh, Awesome. And and I I genuinely do agree. It's about the, you know, the full mosaic of the problem. You know, the law enforcement uh, is a really powerful part of the whole painting and the whole picture. However, it's not the whole picture. You know, there's the institutional side, which is what we've been, uh, which is what we've been focusing on this whole time. But the socioeconomic drivers uh, are crucial to solving this problem uh, as well. And actually, uh, in in MLK's book, he talks about that in specific and how the reason that um, African American communities, uh, which we call ghettos, uh, wrongly so. Uh, we call these communities ghettos of low-income individuals who really have no choice but to work these terrible jobs uh, and because they desperately cannot afford anything. Nobody in their family can afford to help them afford anything. Uh, so it's, compound, it's compounded poverty at that. Uh, what he talked about is the reason that all of these socioeconomic problems are happening is because for about two to I think it's like 200 years or something like that from 16 it's 1620 or 1670 uh when the Mayflower Yeah, when the Mayflower ship uh came and settled Jamestown all the way till 17 uh, all the way until um uh the 1960s so 1600 1700 1800 1900, 300, yeah. 300 years of slavery we built our entire economic foundation which for every single country and every single people that exists is agriculture we built it on uh, on literally free labor uh, and um, uh, minimal humanity and that's how we established our wage levels that's where we get the whole 60,000 average US income from um, that's uh, We built all of that income threshold and all of those uh, economic uh, uh, basic minimums on this concept of free labor. And the problem is that um, ideally we'd find a way to include um, – Actually, so the question is, um, okay, so we abolish slavery, we enact civil rights, uh, everyone has decided, we hate racism, we hate injustice, we don't care what the color of your skin is, we don't care if you're red, purple, brown, uh, sky blue, or plaid. Um, We want you to have equal opportunity as every American in the United States of America should. The problem is, how do you fit... Um, How do you fit uh, an entire, like, five demographics of people, African-American men, women, children, and indigenous people, into this economic model when you've done it for 300 years uh, in a way uh, that has built your society? Long story short is we never did, and that's why we're seeing so many poverty problems.
1: Yeah, exactly. And if I can start from the beginning of your statement— where you said that we built the uh, groundwork or we built our country on free labor, our country still works on free labor. I mean, I bet that at least half of your listeners have worked for free. They've clocked out and then continued to work because their boss told them to or they were denied overtime while they were working. You know, know, we're going to have you work an extra four hours today. Can I get overtime for that? No, but if you don't show up and do it, you're going to lose your job. And so we've built it, even today, and it's not just black people, it's not just indigenous people, it's not just people of color, it applies to white people as well, it applies to Europeans and all sorts of people, is that this country would simply collapse if we abolished free labor overnight. So what has happened is we never truly abolished slavery. The 13th Amendment simply rebranded it. There is a clause in the 13th Amendment that says slavery shall be abolished except in cases of punishment for a crime. So what that causes, that causes Jim Crow laws. That causes laws such as that, that report, and even after Jim Crow laws, laws that disproportionately affect people of color, is that is that um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the law enforcement has a bigger incentive, and the government in general has a bigger incentive to try and put people of color behind bars so that way the people of color can work for free or incredibly low wages. I believe the national average is 60 cents an hour. That's the average. I think some get up to like dollar fifty, two dollars an hour. I know federal prisons um, pay a little bit higher than it, but some even go down as low as five, 10 cents an hour. So essentially what we did was we rebranded um, slavery as prison labor. And that's where we are today. So. Now let me address the part where you said, "How do we fix this? How do we get out of this? How do we stop worrying? How do we end the free labor problem in the United States?" And that's not an easy question to answer because it's so ingrained in our society. I think a good, I think it requires more of a societal shift than a uh, legal shift because once society stops putting up with free labor, then there will be actual incentives for the government to also try and abolish free labor and I'm no economist I don't know how that would work Um, but it's what we need to do and I'm sure someone who's much better versed in the economic realm than me can come up with theories and um, methodologies that we can use to get out of there
0: well I did go to college for economics and accounting and I can tell you the reason that the wages are so horrible and the reason that these uh... demographic groups never did get their fair wages is because the income never changed um, king cotton as they called it still made uh... Billi- uh x amount of billions of dollars a year Uh, before and after slavery. With that being said, think about it like this. If you have $10,000, if you divide it by one person, one person gets $10,000. If you divide it by 10 people, so now nine people want the same job in the cotton industry, all of a sudden now nobody's getting $10,000. Everyone only gets $1,000. And that's why earlier I talked about the injection of all of these uh, people demographics, such as African American communities, uh, women, children, indigenous people, um, laborers, etc. Um, that's why I talked about it because uh, you know the income level, um, the economic threshold um, uh, that affects the gross domestic product of this country uh, never changed, and then we tried to just add an entire group of employees to it and essentially it just theoretically it would just kill everybody's wages according to the amount of people that had to be it had to be divided amongst but uh, as we know with corporate america it it got completely skewed uh, so therefore we uh, the laboring uh, the labor market just took a gigantic hit and that's why everybody uh, got um, essentially fucked over uh, financially uh, at that. And it's for those reasons that we're seeing uh, low-income, impoverished communities that we have societally branded as ghettos of African-American people.
1: Exactly. And um, one thing that I may add to that, if I may, is that um, um, it's not necessarily – obviously, it does affect um, people of color more. But just like police brutality, it is not a problem with racism primarily because white people get brutalized as well. It is a problem with greed. It is a problem with power. And the way that they exercise that power is through racist and unequal treatment. It is like you you see white people getting brutalized by the police. But they they can go to bed safely knowing that they were brutalized not because of the color of their skin. Uh, people of color can't, because it's, it's a brutalization problem. It's a power problem first. And it's a racism problem that comes in at a very, very, very close second. But at the end of the day, it's primarily a power problem executed through racism.
0: Okay. Um... So we've talked about uh, the major differences uh, between what we see on TV and what we see uh, in person, and we've compared that with um, uh, the marches that were happening in 1965 at the civil rights movements in Birmingham and ultimately in Washington, D.C. We've talked about uh, reformation of institution. We've talked about uh, why our country has never recovered from, uh, uh, from our unfortunate foundations Um, so going forward, I'm wondering what's the best thing we can, uh, do to ultimately solve this problem. And you said that, uh, the best thing would be a societal shift. And in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., he believed that the only true way, uh, that we would solve, um, uh, social segregation, the only way that we would truly solve discrimination of any color of any type is if, uh, is number one with a gigantic uh, government bill that would stim- would stimulate all of these bad uh, areas uh, of, of the country due to every said situation we just laid down. Uh, he said it would be a billion, billion dollar bill. Um, that would be signed into law uh, to help these communities get off the ground. And he said the reason that would be the only way uh, that we'd be able to solve the problem is because then you're satisfying the status quo with the institution and you're giving the disfortuned people some fortune. And that's why he said that. Now, me personally... Uh, I believe that he's right. However, I question, based on everything we just talked about, um, how it would be written into law, because you just said uh, that, um, that the 13th Amendment has a caveat, which obviously I don't believe the law should have caveats unless uh, discussed in Congress, assembled, uh, and voted on by the people. Oh,
1: absolutely. I think the thing that we can start off with, first and foremost, is stop voting for the establishment and it doesn't it it's not just enough just to vote for third parties uh, i definitely think that voting third party is a good idea but i don't think that that will solve the problem because that will only lead to the third parties getting corrupt couple of things that would solve that is vote for the anti-establishment individuals if you're a democrat Vote for AOC. Vote for Rashida Clay. Vote for uh, Shahid Buttar, who is currently running uh, in the primary against Pelosi. Vote for people that aren't currently in office. Vote for people who don't um, take money from a lot of the big special interests, because a lot of the special interests also have a financial hand, a financial benefit in keeping um, the status quo alive and well. So the first thing you can do is uh, vote for people who aren't part of the problem. Vote for people who aren't taking money from the problem or from the uh, people uh, funding the problem. All right, the second that's a good thing point. we can do is
0: well that. I said that's a good point because I didn't even think about that. How Essentially what you're saying is don't vote for the incumbent because uh, the people who are not the incumbent haven't had the chance to uh, take advantage of the legal and institutional system.
1: Yes, absolutely. The second thing, which is much more challenging but would be easier if we had a uh – Congress, both houses of Congress, full of people who aren't just you know normal run-of-the-mill establishment Democrats and established Republicans is I think that we truly, truly need a national popular vote referendum. We can discuss the electoral uh, electoral electoral college later. That's not what I'm uh, on about right now. But we need. Uh, I want to say it's like 27 or 28 states right now. They have ballot initiatives. You can go and you can vote on, like, specific issues. Colorado legalized cannabis through a uh, ballot initiative. A lot of the states that, I think most of the states that have legalized uh, cannabis legalize it through net, uh, ballot initiatives. I think we need a constitutional amendment to allow that so that the American people have an actual direct say in solving the problem rather than having to ho- just having to hope that what the, their preferred politician uh, is saying is actually what they're going to do because i mean we've seen it time and time again politician promises this they don't deliver trump promised to build the wall in the first four years he's gotten about three miles of it done trump promised to you know uh, uh, put hillary in jail hillary is still a free person uh, obama promised um, or at least for part of his campaign i think he took it off the website in not too long but for his first presidential campaign he promised that there would be very, very, very strict and stringent and heavily enforced whistleblower protection. Obviously, as we found out with Chelsea Manning and Ed Snowden, that didn't that didn't happen. And so we have to stop taking politicians at their words as well. And for people, if voting is not an incumbent, and odds are they have probably held some sort of uh, public office before, And so you want to go back and you want to actually take a look at not what they said while they were in office, but what they did while they were in office. And that will bring me to actually my next topic is Joe Biden, because Joe Biden, uh, if you've seen the ads and you've seen his website and everything, he promises to end the racial injustices that we're seeing in America today. Why didn't you end the racial injustices during your forty seven years in Congress? Why didn't you uh, why did you write the racist ninety four crime bill? You know, why did you repeal Glass Gall which allowed the banks to screw us over? Why did you do all why did you two thousand five bankruptcy bill, which means student loans aren't forgiven when you file for bankruptcy? I don't think that electing people who have had that much time in office and gotten absolutely nothing positive done, I don't think that's the solution. And as I've learned in a lot of these protests, the uh, the, uh, the the George Floyd protests, the Jacob Blake protests, the protests following the shooting in Kenosha, you know, I went to a, a protest that was a uh, justice for um, justice for Kobe Heisler, who was an autistic individual, 21 years old, I think, autistic white kid who was shot by I want to say Brooklyn Park police last year um, because he was having an autistic episode of some sort. And his mom called the police, hoping that they would specifically told 911, don't send the police, uh, send crisis intervention folks. So they sent the police, and Kobe was actually walking, if I remember right, he was walking away from the police with a knife in his hand, at that point in time, a danger to nobody but himself, and he was, I won't, I believe, I don't know all of the exact specifics, but while walking away, he was, I believe, tased and then shot. Okay. Okay. And I mean, a lot of these people at these uh, rallies, at these protests, they understand that voting for the people that have been in office for the last, you know, 30, 40 years is not the solution to the problem. And a lot of them aren't voting for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Sadly, a lot of them plan on sitting out rather than researching uh, third parties, which I don't think is the right uh, solution. Um... But, I mean, Joe Jorgensen is on the ballot in 50 states. Howie Hawkins is on the ballot and I want to say, 46 plus D.C. Um, You can go out and you can vote for these people who actually want to make the world a better place and actually have legitimate policy positions, substantive policy positions, that they will gladly go into detail for hours and hours and hours on this. How to solve these problems, but a lot of people would rather just say, you know, suck it up and vote for Biden. You know, at least he's not Trump. Well, I'm voting for third party because at least they're not Trump or Biden. Right. Well...
0: I usually try not to get political on my shows, but you know what? To hell with that! I just—it's uh, uh, Andrew Niklasky, everybody. Uh, We've—we're uh, gonna uh, go ape shit on every single politician, and I love that. Uh,
1: and it's—it's their—it's not entirely the politician's fault. They've lied to us for years, but it's our fault for not. Trying to see through their lies, we would we're, we would rather be complacent with lies than uncomfortable with the truth, and that's that's not just because we're Americans. That's another one of the many flaws of the human psyche that is just because we're imperfect beings. Oh, and another thing, end the drug war. That would also help a lot.
0: <laughs> right okay yeah so uh sorry i was silent for like 0.5 seconds my keys were in my pocket and all of a sudden my alarm was going off on my car so yeah everybody yeah. that that happened Haha, ha, there's your uh mysterious ending to the episode all right uh with that being said as always i end all of my podcasts with a question uh what's uh what should my question be about
1: what should it be about? You're the podcast
0: host. Why, right. thank you. I was looking for advice, but I guess, okay. My
1: favorite flavor <laughs> of cookie is
0: butterscotch. Thank you. I needed to know that. Um, uh, <laughs> I do love butterscotch cookies. Uh, anyway, um, what is the solution uh, to racial injustice please feel free to let me know in any way you'd like to anyway thank you everybody for sharing the last 42 minutes and 16 seconds with me and andrew nikloski uh we are out say bye andrew
1: bye-bye thank you for having me on your show brother
0: Yeah. bye